Now, now your ideas don't have to wait. Now they have everything they need to come to life. Dell Technologies and Intel are creating technology that loves ideas, loves expanding your business, evolving your passions. We push what technology can do so great ideas can happen right now. Find out how to bring your ideas to life at Dell.com. Welcome to now. Welcome back to A King's Reign. I'm the host of the series, Andrew Schlecht. During this series, we've detailed so much about LeBron, both on and off the court. We talked about him as a media figure, a comedic actor, a business mogul, a political force, and an activist. Sometimes, though, the discussion that isn't had enough is strictly about LeBron, the basketball player. For this episode, we enlisted our Nerder She Wrote crew of Dave DeFore, Seth Partnow, and Mo DeKeel to analyze how LeBron has evolved as a basketball player over time. Enjoy. In a world searching for the next Michael Jordan, LeBron James emerged as a new blueprint for greatness, providing a glimpse of his destiny in his very first NBA game. With the first pick in the 2003 NBA draft, the Cleveland Cavaliers select LeBron James. With explosive athleticism and breathtaking court vision, LeBron previewed the next 20 years of his career and showed just a peek at the player we now know as the greatest of his generation. Coming to the end of the third quarter, LeBron James, a shot in history, LeBron stands alone! to LeBron James. Join us as we witness his meteoric rise and his captivating, relentless pursuit of greatness, setting the stage for an epic journey that would leave an everlasting mark on basketball history. Brace yourself for the unparalleled brilliance of LeBron James, the chosen one who fulfilled all the promise and along the way, reshaped the game as we know it. I'm Dave DeFore from The Athletic, joined by my podcasting partners, Mo DeKeel and Seth Partnow. And in this chapter of A King's Reign, we're going to take a look back at LeBron's NBA debut and how, if you look close enough, you get a preview of the next 20 years. So join us on a trip back in time to October 29th, 2003. Seth, Mo, we all rewatched LeBron's first game and... There was one thing that stood out to me right away on the broadcast, and that's this guy was just built different from day one. 6'8", 240 pounds with a legitimate NBA-ready body coming out of high school. This was like Kareem going into college. I mean, he was a, a man amongst boys in his draft class. It was pretty incredible to just 
go back in time and, and revisit that. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing, him coming into the league right away was you knew his body was built. It wasn't, there have been a lot of guys who came out of high school who you're like, okay, their body needs a little bit more time to catch up. And it wasn't, that's not LeBron's case. LeBron came in right away off the bat and it was just a matter of like, yo, he doesn't have to work on his body. He's, we're not worried about him getting pushed around and things like that. Like just by the pure look of it, you're like, yeah, this guy right off the bat, you're like, he's ready. I know we're, we're focused more specifically on his first game, but you say he didn't need to work on his body, but then he did. And it wasn't a case where there's a lot of kind of the early bloomer prospects who, you know, gain some notoriety because they're kind of fully developed at 15 and then they stop. Whereas he came into the league as that. And, you know, look how, how skinny he is in, in this first game, like jumped out to me. It's Not so that he funny. ever became like fat. But he's just he's he he went from being like a you know an outside linebacker to a defensive end basically over the course of of the next few years of his career. So he started not needing to work on his body, and then he did, and that only made him more effective because he did that. I would say increasing the kind of the quick twitch athleticism that we saw in his first game. Yeah, but it was I mean just you know what it's something you said, Seth. It was just so funny seeing the first close up of his face, and you're like, damn. Young LeBron, <laughs> you know, like the look on his face now with the beard and everything and, and, and the hair and all that stuff. Like you're, you're just like, wow, kind of forgot what LeBron looked like when he first came in the league, just in the face in itself. But yeah, I mean, you're right. Like it wasn't a matter of like, and I wasn't meaning he didn't need to work on his body, but it wasn't a point of emphasis of when he got drafted. This guy needs to put on 15 pounds. You know, it was one of those things that I think mattered with the way he kind of just was able to come in. And that was part of the thing of like, he was a prospect from day one you expected. He's going to come in and be able to play heavy NBA minutes. And that turned out to be exactly the case. And big part of that, as Dave was alluding to, was his body. The focus on that is what led to the longevity. In his career, he has avoided injury in a way that, I mean, this is kind of unprecedented. We're... We just finished up year 20 and he hasn't missed significant time until late in his career. And you can right. argue some of that has been, yeah, there's some age related injuries there, but also he's been on some non-competitive teams as well. So the impetus to be out there is a little bit lower, but that first game was a sign of things to come. I mean, he has been meticulous about his body, his preparation, and it showed in day one. He was a blur on the basketball court. I think that it's probably easy for all of us that have seen so much LeBron to forget how fast he was. This guy was a freight train, a 6'8", 240-pound freight train, and he was just that guy day one, and he looked faster than the other NBA players on the court with him in that first game. Yeah, I mean, he was young. He had fresh legs. He, all of those fun things. But Dave, you're, it's 100% true in the sense of like, we do kind of forget how fast he was. Just in that simple sense. Like this happens with guys that have been in the league for so long. And not a lot of guys have been in the league 20-something years. And he's had several different chapters. But you do kind of forget like you know, the, the slowdown LeBron we see now for the most part, except when he gets a, a breakaway. It's relatively different from the LeBron he was when he came out in 2004 like it's just a different dude in that sense and 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 that speed aspect of it 
was so important early on because that was such a big thing for him, you know, being able to just kind of attack. And and that was an advantage he had. I was trying to think of, of kind of that sort of stylistic transition we've seen for players across the years. And there's two, the two comparisons I came up with were one was like from one player to another player. And there's one where maybe this is not a person who had the same career, but a similar kind of uh, transition from like runaway train to a, a more controlled uh, rule change inducing play. And that's Charles Barkley. Um, now, some of that with Barkley, it was I think he he lost some athleticism due to to, to injury and aging and didn't, didn't maintain quite the same level. Um, whereas LeBron, it was almost more of a choice. Uh, the other comparison is he came into the league playing like Zion and is going to go out playing like Chris Paul and has done both at an all-NBA level in a like complete athletic dominant style and a cerebral assassin style. And that's that's borderline unprecedented, would you say? You can make the argument that he got better as he forced himself to slow down because the pace of the game changed with LeBron. He controlled the pace, and now I'm going to swing into the future a little bit to one of my favorite LeBron performances was the 2015 finals loss to the Warriors where lost Kyrie, no Kevin Love, and he just grinds the game down to a halt. And, And frankly... It's the performance of LeBron that stands out the most when I think about his career because it was the ultimate in desperation, but also control of the basketball court. And Mo, this is the sort of stuff. I mean, this is the all-time greats stuff. This is where you get into, there's a reason why he's mentioned with Michael Jordan. There's a reason why he's mentioned with Magic Johnson. These guys also control the pace of the game. And I think LeBron, as he evolved, it's amazing that the guy that was the fastest, and most powerful in the league, also had the best concept of time on the court. It's just the ability when you, first off, at his size, he was still the main ball handler. Like, he's their point guard for whatever team. He wasn't listed as the point guard and all that stuff, but he was the point guard, right? And everything ran through him, and he kind of controlled everything. It, It was his ability to not just, it wasn't just control the time, but make use of it. And make it in a way where it was beneficial for everybody on that team. And I think that's the the important stuff with him, with the IQ and with everything that goes into it. You know, we're going to talk a whole ton about just LeBron, but like all the different facets of him, it all, you know, kind of comes together perfectly. And with his ability, he has the understanding of his powers. And I think that's the big thing that I think even some other guys don't have is understanding what they can do and how they can make things and how they can manipulate the time and, and the and the play itself in the moment and things like that. I think that's kind of the big stuff with him. And we saw it because he had to do it in that series, Dave, because he had nobody else, right? Like everybody got injured and it was, you know, I mean, Delva Dova was getting an IV because he was dehydrated severely for guarding Steph and running around. But that was his running mate for the most part. And I think that's kind of the stuff you're watching for when you watch LeBron and just over this entire span, you kind of see the, the growth early on and then eventually the understanding that comes with it. And I think that's a big part of just the big piece of the LeBron legacy. This might be simplistic, but you could almost see him inventing the modern playoff offensive style in that series. Not so much the slow down, like run it up the middle for two yards in a cloud of dust, because that's the only way we can, slow the game down to compete at this talent disadvantage, but the ability to say, 
I want that guy guarding me and we're going to do something to get that guy on me in a way has changed the playoffs to much more of a weak link system. It used to be like, oh, well, they got a guy who sits in the corner and shoots. We can park our good offensive player who can't guard there. And that just doesn't work anymore because LeBron was, I would say, one of the pioneers of, well, I'm going to bring that guy into the action and I'm going to go at that guy. You're going to either I'm going to get good stuff every time or you're taking him off the floor. And I think that in, in combination with, I think, the Warriors attack, uh, their ability to kind of pick at any weak link with their kind of collective has changed like what it means to be a quote 16 game player. Well, that's before the game even started, guys. The game starts and the first thing LeBron does, the first play he makes is an assist, which is perfect when you think about his career because he's been derided for being unselfish, which is an amazing thing to say about a basketball player who ultimately became the all-time leading scorer in the NBA. But the first play he made was an assist. It was a lob in transition, an alley-oop. And that's kind of fitting, Mo. I mean, that's him. That's kind of just perfect in that sense. Like the the thing about him being derided for so long for for almost deferring at times. Like you remember the play against Utah? They lost the game, but he comes off a screen and double comes to him and he hits Udonis Haslam for a jumper that Haslam misses and they lose the game and everybody's screaming, LeBron should have taken that shot. And Da, da, da. And it was the right play. And LeBron always kind of makes the right play. I think the, you know, he kind of gets downgraded sometimes for being too unselfish. But it's incredibly funny because we never talk about LeBron in the scoring sense. You know, despite being the all-time leading scorer in the NBA. And it's just like we never talk about him as one of the best scorers ever in the NBA. We never talk about him even in the seasons. You know, he's one of, I mean, it's always Carmelo Anthony. We always talk about KD. We always talk about guys that are always able to get their buckets, but we ignore him because of all the passing. But oh, also, don't forget, he's also top five in all-time assists. And you don't know where he's going to end up on that list. But like when you're watching this stuff, like that's incredible in its own right to be at such a high-level scoring and then be such a high-level passer. Like there's not a lot of crossover on that list between the on those two lists you're not going to see a lot of the same names in the scoring department that are going to be in the passing department and I think that's part of the beauty of LeBron but we just never give him credit for being that scorer and it's commonplace now but watching this game I was astounded by how much LeBron was leaving his feet to pass jump passing is now everyone does it I mean your sixth seventh guy does it LeBron was one of the first I mean he was jumping all over the place including driving to the basket, jumping for a layup, and as the defender comes over, throws a one-hand bullet to the corner to a three-point shooter, which we've just seen LeBron do that over and over and over again in his career. But he did that in game one. This reminds me of interest, an interesting aspect of discussing LeBron early in his career is there was a, uh, there was a little bit of a backlash to him in, oh, he doesn't have the fundamentals. Because he would jump into the air to pass, because he played off a live dribble instead of out of triple threat. The fundamentals are there for almost for everybody else. When you are the combination of as talented and as skilled a reader of the game as LeBron, you're you're leaving something on the floor by not taking advantage of that. And I think that his ability to play more out on the edge by, you know, playing off a live dribble, making one hand passes jumping in the air using his, you know, combination of, you know, hang time to get up in the air and then strength to, because if, I mean, if you've ever tried to throw a jump pass, like 
kind of hard to get the ball without your legs under you. It's kind of hard to get the ball there, but he has never had Speak that problem yourself, because. Seth. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mo. With, uh, um, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Adonis Dekeel. As, as <laughs> but his ability to kind of exist outside of the normal rules of how to play, that's just another aspect of it. Well, I mean, he just, he did things in ways that we just, we didn't see. Like, in, in the way of like, well, he broke all the rules and did it so effortlessly and made it so easy that it was like, well, maybe this is a dumb rule. Now, part of it is like, yeah, he's also a freak. He's also LeBron James. But some of it was like, these are rules to be tested. Let's kind of break the box open. Like, he kind of brought a different level of thinking in terms of these things. That for, for players going forward, jump passes, one-handed passes. He had a, he has a great hammer pass. Like, they have plays like where they give it to him in the post, and he just whips it one-handed to the corner. You know, this is something I remember mostly in Cleveland with the second stint. Like, he has that kind of, ability of of doing all those things where like when we would teach fundamentals it would be rules and he would just be like no 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 no, the rules don't apply to me and he would produce with that where you kind of just go like eh, yeah rules really don't apply to you well it's a different set of rules when you can do what he was able to do and one of the other things that stood out to me in this game about the passing instant chemistry this was game one and he had struggled a little bit offensively in the preseason leading up to this as a rookie, but instant chemistry with his teammates, they ran with him. They knew he was looking for him and he was finding them throughout his career. Think about how many guys have had career seasons playing with LeBron James. And we think a lot about the, okay, you're going to go stand in the corner. Your role is different, but when you're playing with LeBron James, your role is going to be different. I don't care what caliber of player you are. You're, you're going to be lower on the pecking order. But his ability to maximize players around his play style, I, mean, I think that was evident from day one. This is an area where not just the hype, but like the level of coverage he had beforehand. You know, I the, you go back in the days, like I didn't really know what this rookie had. And then he showed up at camp and oh my goodness, I imagine he showed up at Cavs camp that first year and the vets knew who he was and what he was about and had seen him play and were like, yeah, no, I can run with this guy. I can. He can have the ball. I see what this is in a way that might not have happened before. But that wasn't the case, though. You still had veterans that were like, he's got to come in and fit into us. Like They had guys like Ricky Davis, who wasn't really all that willing to be like, no, I'm still the guy. Like there was a, LeBron had to win those guys over because there was still the element of all this hype is undeserved. Like He's probably one of the first high school athletes to be on Sports Illustrated. With that Sports Illustrated article from the late Grant Wall, who wrote, wrote an unbelievable piece at the time, right? Like, he had to come in and be that guy right away. And how many times have we seen players who've come in and not lived up to that rookie hype off the bat? Zion's a guy that we kind of talked to a lot about it. Ben Simmons had the generational talent thrown around him and hasn't, you know, really kind of lived up to it. There's so many guys we put that hype on these guys where it's almost like, it's impossible for them to succeed. And it almost felt like that hype on LeBron was so high that it was going to be impossible for him to succeed. And he did. But it even took a while to win over those teammates. You know, that's why in that game, Dave, that you're talking about, they, he has a reach around play, pokes the ball away from Doug Christie, sprints up the court, gets the ball up the court, catches it. He has an easy, hey, I could just turn and get a, an easy layup right here sees Ricky Davis just throws it right to Ricky 
for him to do that. It was smart on his end. I need to win these guys over, and I can do that with some of my passing. At the same time, I, I'm not sure it's an accident that Ricky Davis was traded. Oh, I mean, very, that part very, very early, early in that season. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it was fit in or fit out. He just thought it was, Ricky thought it was fit in to me. It was like, no, you're the one that has to fit in or get out. But I think coming in, there was a lot of pressure for him, even with his new teammates. And in that first game, he, he had 12 points in the first quarter. Did not take a single shot in the second quarter. So to your point, Mo, I, I do think that that was something that he was very conscious of. You know, Isaiah Thomas has talked a lot about as a point guard, you have to have a counter in your head. This guy needs a touch. This guy needs a touch. And I think LeBron came in with a point guard mindset. But in that game, he also scored 25 points, guys. He was 12 of 20 from the field. Had struggled shooting the basketball. It was a thing that people talked about. Oh, can he shoot? Can he shoot? We've heard of this about a lot of rookies. Will he ever shoot? First three shots of the game were mid-rangers. He was getting to a spot and he hit him. Finished the first quarter four of five. I mean, his first dunk was an iconic now dunk for LeBron James, where he gets jumps the passing lane at the top of the key, gets a steal, breakaway dunk. All the flashes of the way that LeBron scores, because eventually he did turn the mid-range into a weapon for him. LeBron is now the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. For his career, averaged 27 points, 25 points in game one. Again, it was a precursor of things to come. I mean, when we go into his offense, like when we talk about his abilities and things like that, and again, the passing like we just discussed was a thing, and we talked about him being that both scorer and a passer. You also just got to remember, he was a go-to guy down the stretch of games. Like coming in first game of the season, first NBA game, 25 points. Dave, his next game, 21 points. You know, then he struggles the next couple of games and a little bit of that transition and things like that. But he just kind of continues to sort of build upon those things with everything that he's gone through. And he's always done, and we're going to talk about some of the development and evolution of LeBron because I find that to be two different things. But just early on, you saw the development of the game for him, of his game, and how he was focused on. Because he didn't come in as a shooter. He didn't come in as a guy that you were you were worried about shooting and bombing. And even the mid-range shots that he took in that first game and things like that, you were okay with. You know what's funny in that game? Mike Bibby's the one guarding him. Mike Bibby, was that was his assignment. You know, there wasn't like there wasn't anything like they didn't really know what to do yet with him. Doug Christie, who was on the Kings at the time as their defensive stopper, wasn't on LeBron in game one. The concerns of him as a scorer weren't quite there when he first started. Is he the highest usage player who isn't primarily a scorer? It's funny to say that about the guy who's the NBA's all-time leading scorer, but it seems like the scoring is not the thing that gets talked about. as, his, And I don't think it is the thing that really encompasses his dominance. Yet he's so good that he does it anyway. It's easy for him, and he probably is that guy, Seth. Like, he's probably the only guy with that kind of usage and able to score the way he does, and we don't talk about it. If you took away all the other stats and just kept the scoring, wow, he's the greatest scorer in history. (laughs) Take away all the other stats and just keep the assists. Wow, he's fourth all-time in assists. Take away the assists and the scoring. Wow, he's like top 40 in rebounds. I mean, the, the guy, and part of this is 20 years. Longevity is important here. Again, back to that body. But he has performed for 20 years. 27, 7, and 7 for his career. 20 years. This is in, These are video game numbers. 
And it's very similar to the numbers he had his very first game, Dave. 25, 9, and 6 were right in that range. This is why it was so eye-opening. Like you said, watching this first game was a preview to the future of LeBron. It's such a great point where if you take away one aspect of it, he's impacted the game on so many levels that it's extremely difficult to really kind of quantify him in just one box. This had never really occurred to me. It's funny you bring up that that level of consistency. Uh, one of his peers early in his career is Tim Duncan, who's famous for basically having the same season year after year after year. And Tim Duncan kind of did play the same way year after year after year, whereas LeBron is having this season year after year after year, making some very fundamental alterations to his game across those seasons. You know, being at that level of effectiveness, despite, again, playing in several different styles and several different contexts as a, you know, starts as kind of a ball dominant, uh, you know, playmaker, moves to a, you know, the the key of a, of a defense and fast break, like monster early in, in his Miami career, and then sort of transitions almost back into that floor general, but at a much more half court rather than full court situation. He scores and has scored in basically every way imaginable. How many guys can you trust in a pick and roll, a post up? He's now ninth all time in career made three pointers. We talked about the evolution of his mid-range game. I mean, those Cleveland teams that made the finals four years in a row, they were all based around LeBron at the elbow because that mid-ranger became a weapon for him and you had to guard him and it got him to the basket. Richard Jefferson caught a lot of lobs from LeBron at the elbow because he was wide open. Mo, you mentioned when he made that amazing assist to Ricky Davis and I mentioned you know, the first dunk coming off, jumping and passing lane, getting a steal. He had four steals in his first game. The defense-to-offense part of his game might be something that we don't talk enough about because he's still dominant in that respect. He reads passing lanes like no one else, and the athleticism that he had throughout most of his career, Seth, he was one of the few guys where that athleticism directly translated to productive defense. Mo's favorite uh, boogeyman is the notion of, oh, this guy's a two-way player. Um, and for the most part, they're, they're, you can see a pretty strong relationship across the league between guys who do a ton on offense, have a tendency, at least in regular season settings, to, to take a little bit of a backseat on defense. When LeBron really hit the peak of his powers, I think those, those middle years in Miami were the absolute peak of his career. Not only was he the best offensive player in the league, he had a claim of being the best defensive player in the league. I don't know if you guys remember, there was when the player tracking data first came in, uh, Zach Lowe Grantland did an article talking about Toronto had developed like a ghost defender system, whereas if this play was defended perfectly, uh, what didn't get talked about a lot in that article was it assumed every every ghost was LeBron in their ability to both react quickly and cover ground. And so he is almost literally like the platonic ideal of a, of a floor-covering defender in those years of his career. Forget just the physical ability to do this, the, the, everything he could do defensively. Also, the preparation he went to. He could tell the opponents, no, you're in the wrong spot. You got to go over here. You got to, you, you, no, no, no. On this play, you're curling off of him. Like the, the detail orientation that he had with these things and having the understanding of what the other team was trying to get to and how to get the things. And I, I, I think that's an important side note of him that we don't talk about like yes the, there's no question right the defense has has fallen off through the course of the years and he, the, the effort's not always there and, and things like that but when it is there 
and what Seth is talking about during his peak powers when it was just a regular constant thing, it was impossible. His ability to kind of rotate over and get a weak side block, lock your guys down. He was a problem to solve defensively. And for you, when you were working against him on offense, you're trying to figure out, like, how can we put him in bad positions? It's extremely difficult on that end. And again, that's why it goes back to like, yeah, he was a fully formed basketball player when he was in his prime. Did it on both ends of the court. Was super impressive with everything that he could possibly do. The ability of those Heat teams to punish opposition for bad, sloppy offensive possessions. And that some of that is like LeBron pick sixes. Some of that is force a bad shot, get a rebound, and then you've got LeBron and Wade sprinting down the floor and doing what they're doing. But uh, just that that ability to combine those two aspects of his game with that athleticism, that that understanding, and, and frankly, that conditioning, which I think the fact that he did it, the, the struggle he has to do it now on both ends, I think just almost makes it more impressive the level of conditioning he, he was at to do that a decade ago. More from the Nerder crew after a word from our sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Discover the latest collections from David Yerman, as seen recently, styled on basketball stars like Jaime Jaquez, Jalen Green, D'Angelo Russell, and others. David Yerman is a celebrated American jewelry company inspired by the beauty of art, architecture, and the natural world. The story of David Yerman begins in New York City with David, a sculptor, and his wife, Sybil, a painter and ceramicist. When the artists began collaborating, their goal was to simply make beautiful designed objects to wear. Over 40 years later, the Yermans and their son Evan continue to redefine American luxury jewelry with timeless modern collections for women and men defined by inspiration, innovation, consummate craftsmanship, and cable, the brand's artistic signature. David Yerman's collections are available on davidyerman.com. A couple years ago, I was sitting down, uh, taking a break from my job at The Athletic Media Company, and uh, I was drinking a non-alcoholic beer from Athletic Brewing, and I thought, uh, hey, this this could be a partnership because I'm, I'm an ad wizard, and so I put those two things together and took a couple years, but now I get to read ads for Athletic Brewing and uh, their non-alcoholic beers, and I'm excited about it. And I'm excited about it because I like the product. I like the product for a variety of different reasons. There are times where I'm uh, the designated driver, and that is, it's perfect for me. I don't feel like I'm, I'm missing out on a whole lot. There are also times where I'm not the designated driver, but it's going to be a long day of gabbing, and I don't necessarily need to have 10 IPAs in a row. So I will mix in an athletic, non-alcoholic beer, and I, I feel like I don't miss a beat. 
and it allows me to pace myself uh, the way I want to do it. It's perfect for beach days, music festivals, and baseball games, camping, late nights. Uh, they have a ton of different varieties. They have uh, light, they have upside uh, Don Golden, they have Run Wild IPA, they have a hazy IPA, they have summer seasonals, they've got a, a lemon Rattler ripe pursuit. I don't even know what a Rattler is, but now I want to try it. I feel bad that I haven't tried it. So this summer, ask for the only non-alcoholic beer you need to know, Athletic. Head to askforathletic.com to find it near you and use the code TA2024 to get 15% off your first online order. That's code TA2024 at checkout for 15% off. It's near beer, non-alcoholic beer, and it tastes... Listen, I grew up with some funky ones. Uh, those didn't taste like beer. This tastes like this. This is good non-alcoholic beer. Exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company, fit for all times. Today's episode is brought to you by Giorgio Armani Aqua Di Gio Parfume, a long-lasting and deeply intense men's fragrance that captures the powerful sensations of nature. The woody aquatic scent features notes of bergamot, clary sage, and patchouli, which create an intensity that is vibrant and aromatic. Discover more at GiorgioArmaniBeauty.com. What was LeBron's peak to you? I know that's a tricky question. I think it's those Miami years. I think that's his peak athleticism, and that's his peak all the powers kind of coming together there. And it's, I think that's it. You know, I, I don't think he's, it was a very long peak, though. It stretches to his time in Cleveland, you know, with, with those teams and whatnot. But I think, you know, when we go peak, peak, and these are the years, I mean, those two championships that he won with Miami, I mean, one of those years he had, what, one of the most efficient field goal percentages ever? Like, I don't, you know, Seth, you're the numbers guy with history. I'll just go with the hyperbolic stuff. But it was felt like he made every shot from inside the paint. He was getting there at will with the ease. That was the stuff that made it so hard to have to deal with. And that season was an evolutionary season coming off the loss to the Dallas Mavericks in the finals where LeBron actually struggled to score. He went back to the drawing board, started working on post-ups, attacking the basket, finding ways to score that weren't relying on a jump shot. And that's kind of the secret to his career. Now, for me... It was that 2015 finals that was the peak because I had never seen someone control nine other guys on a basketball court like that. And even though they lost, it was still just such a almost heroic performance. When you look at how the deck was just completely stacked against the Cavs to, to even have a, a shot to win those games, I, I thought was, was so different. And, and again, it, it was a loss, but... I came away with a new level of respect for LeBron as a basketball player. I see what you're saying about the level of respect. I think that just from a sheer effectiveness perspective, though, probably the third year in Miami, the year they beat the Spurs on the Ray Allen shot in game six. I think if we're really going to want to pinpoint that, he was on a 31 usage, he was 20% above league average efficiency. Like they were, the, the idea of kind of the usage efficiency curve, where the more you shoot, the harder the shots are, the less efficient you are. Him in that era, alongside Kevin Durant, kind of almost destroyed the notion of that. And really the fact that it took those two to kind of exceed what was the prior frontier illustrated 
that it is a frontier for mere mortals. As impressive and a narratively satisfying and kind of a 300 Battle of Thermopylae kind of way that uh, 2015 series was, I still think that just the level of, of, of maybe the level of control wasn't there, but the level of impact was just a, that little bit higher when he was playing a little more wide open. I, I got a question for you. What is the all-time LeBron James game to you? I think I'd have to lean game five of the 2016 finals. He puts up 41, 16 rebounds, seven assists, three steals, three blocks. And Kyrie had 41 in that game also. I know no Draymond, but that was a performance back against the wall, down 3-1. And they had to win, especially because Draymond wasn't out. And I think when you combine not only the performance, but with the pressure and the stage, and maybe a little bit of this is me saying, and then they wound up coming back from 3-1, and that was the catalyst. But that's the game that stands out the most to me when I think about LeBron's career. I'm going to go a little earlier than that. I think it's 2007 uh, Eastern Conference Finals, Game 5 against Detroit. He scores 48. At one point, it was, I believe it was he had 27 consecutive uh, of the Cavs points, and... That Detroit team was at the tail end, but still in a period of they were, you know, they'd won a championship, had been there or thereabouts for half a decade. And they were kind of like a a, a favorite that year. And he sort of announced himself as I am a problem forever and ever. I'm not even at the peak of my powers. And they're just going to be games where I win, you lose because I do everything. I don't think that was the, the best game he's ever played. I don't think it's the, uh, the peak of his powers, certainly, but that was the, uh, announcement that this is like not just a special player but all-time status on that pathway it was to, to be honest it's one of my favorites it's not my favorite but it's it's one of those like Thanos is coming when you saw what he did against the Pistons but it's interesting both of your games are wins I'm going with the Cleveland loss and I'm going to the J.R. Smith game in game one because what gets lost in that whole J.R. Smith getting the rebound and, and and losing the plot of the game is that might have been the very best game I've ever seen LeBron James play. Team is completely outgunned. The Warriors are unbelievable. They're going to sweep and win the finals that year. And LeBron in game one, 51 points, eight rebounds, eight assists, plays 47 minutes. The game goes to overtime. So there's a little bit of a, uh, uh, so he did get some rest somewhere. But still, 47 minutes in all of that. And you could see him in this game willing every bit of this to this team to try to get this win. Summoning all his powers. He's being unbelievable on defense. He's giving everything he possibly has. And it's just simply, you know, one play kind of changes everything. But that was the best LeBron James game I've ever seen. Like, in simply watching him go through the entire motions in a team where this is a Warriors team that should beat him easily. They, they, they win the rest of the series pretty easily. But this game, that moment, he was hell-bent on trying to win that thing. And it changes the course of everything. They win that game. They get game one. They steal home court advantage. Series might go a little bit differently. Maybe I'm wrong and it's a gentleman's sweep. But the that game from LeBron himself, just the, the performance he put out there, is easily my favorite and probably the most impressive one. It's not again not a not a favorite, but if another game where in a losing effort would have been uh, Game Seven against Boston, 
where he and Paul Pierce kind of, and it's not like Paul Pierce, you know, outdueled him. It's it's Pierce like was close enough so that the fact that the Celtics had multiple other Hall of Famers and Cleveland didn't. Um, but that I think that's a, that's another one where it's one against many, but the one is is much bigger, much taller, much more powerful, and you're just hoping that you can win with a thousand cuts as opposed to like one knockout punch. As we sort of wrap this up, I've got a legacy question for you guys. We spent, I would argue, the four years prior to LeBron coming to the NBA and a good chunk of the early part of LeBron's career trying to figure out who the next Michael Jordan was going to be. When LeBron finally hangs it up, do you feel like we're going to have that conversation? Who's the next LeBron? Or do you think we've gotten beyond the point of a singular star being the focus of the NBA? That's a great question, Dave, in terms of just the name associated with the NBA. I think we're probably away from that until the next guy arrives. That's the truth of it, right? Because there was that run where Jordan was gone. And then it was Kobe. It was, you know, uh, different names. And we're always kind of like, maybe it's this guy. Maybe it's that guy. And and you're right. Then LeBron has come along. And it sort of has become the NBA synonymous with LeBron James. Known worldwide, everything that goes with it. So it won't surprise me when LeBron does finally hang it up. If we have a little bit of a valley of like, we don't know who that... We have a ton of amazing talent in the NBA. There's no question about it. But there's no one name. And maybe it's coming. Maybe he's in San Antonio right now. Who knows? I'm putting a lot of pressure on a kid on a podcast he shouldn't even... His name shouldn't even have been mentioned on. Maybe not. And it might be a while before we have the next name. But there'll be somebody down the road at some point that will be carry that stature, I think. What will, will they be as good as LeBron or even as good as MJ? I don't know. But have that kind of title. I think there will be somebody at some point. I think the difference is that the question about who's going to be the next MJ was like seemed like a vaguely plausible one because we'd seen 6-6 versatile shooting guards and wing players before and we've never seen a guy a guy who is basically Carl Malone and John Stockton at the same time this the same way that that uh, LeBron was and I think that that's why you know you brought up Wembenyama I think that that's the the next is going to also be the first because we've never seen something like this in this package Either and though, though I think that's the sort of the if you look at the players who've been the new next thing over the years since LeBron came about, it's all different shapes and sizes. It's Steph changing the dimensions of the court. It's Giannis almost expanding on the limits of the runaway freight train. It's Jokic expanding on the larger player who is an all-around passer, and now you know the seven-five guy who can run run around like it like everybody and 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 has great skills facing the, the play so i think that that's the impact of lebron on who's next is taking it outside of this model from jerry west to kobe almost that's the dude thank you for joining us for this chapter of a king's reign for mo Dekeel and seth partnow i'm dave dufour thank you for listening Thank you for listening to A King's Reign. In the next episode and final episode, where does LeBron go from here? 
the approaching ending of his playing career and perhaps the start of his life as an NBA owner. Sam Amick and Jovan Buha discuss all of that in the final episode of A King's Reign. Rob Peterson is the editorial supervisor and creator of A King's Reign. Joe Varden is the consulting producer. Kent Garrison is the theme music composer. Reporting for the series was provided by the Athletic NBA staff. Andrew Schlecht is the host of the series. Matt Havia and Mike Smeltz are the executive producers. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.